Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's great to be back on the air. Hope all of you had a good weekend. And hard to believe tomorrow is election day. You know, these elections, it seems like the whole process in this country takes an eternity now just for elections to even be completed. As I said from the previous uh, podcast, you know, when you go over to Europe, uh, there are a lot of European nations who have election who, yes, hold elections, but their processes for conducting the elections are far more simpler, and they're only like, what, three to six months long compared to what elections um, undergo here in this uh, country. Sometimes I really do wish that our election process was a lot shorter, but unfortunately I don't uh, have the power to control that. What I do have the power of uh, doing is being able to share with you all what I've been doing uh, since the start of June of this year, and that is uh, to be able to share with you all what I know history-wise from a variety of uh, historical um, topics, um, regardless of when they happened, and be able to uh, incorporate that into your all's uh, daily lives, because uh, with all that's going on in the world today, we really need to um, learn as much stuff as there is that's relevant, even though, yes, some of it is sensitive, but we still need to be able to learn about it and how to, um, and how to go about incorporating those pieces of history into the present. So here we are again talking about founding rivals, Madison versus Monroe, the Bill of Rights, and the election that saved a nation. You know, uh, from where we left off uh, the previous night, we talked about uh, freedom of religion and how James Madison spearheaded um, an effort to um, prevent the Episcopal Church from being the official um, religion, or not just the official religion, but the official church of Virginia. You know, here we, you know, just fought a um, a war with um, England to keep um, British influence from uh, dictating our lives, now all of a sudden it's like we're going a step backwards and here James Madison is leading this um, fight to say, hey, if we want to be free, then we are to be worshipped, then we should be worshipping freely, we should be allowed to um, express ourselves, but doing so in a rightful manner, but uh, people should not be persecuted based on their religion or their religious beliefs. So, and as I mentioned as well from the previous night, uh, Baptists, by far, they were the largest dissenting group in Virginia. They were the ones who were the most, who were vigorously persecuted for their religious beliefs. So, tonight's leadoff bonus question is the following. Prior to 1784, had there been any previous attempts on, Virgi- on the Virginia legislature's part to enact religious freedom for all Virginians? The answer is yes. In 1777, the year after Thomas Jefferson um, writes the Declaration of Independence, but in 1777, Jefferson himself drafts a Virginia statute for religious freedom. So Jefferson really is the one, folks, that we have to thank for laying the blueprint foundation for um, free, for religious freedoms, not just in Virginia, but these uh, statutes for religious freedoms also expand to the other states. 
but they also will become widely recognized from nations abroad. But Thomas Jefferson's biggest, um, what do you call it? His, he had a lot of um, important um, elements or uh, factors behind uh, freedom of religion, but if you ask me which one would have been the most essential, or rather two of them, uh, number one, to be able to worship freely regardless of your religious faith, or regardless, let alone your sect, of re religious sect, whether it was Protestant or uh, Catholic. But the most important thing for Jefferson was to have the separation of church and state. In other words, church, a church should not be interfering in the state's uh, business, that is the government's business, and the government should not be telling the church how to go about teaching its uh, members, or let alone its members from within the congregation. They both need to be separate, because if they're not separate, they will make people's lives very uncomfortable, miserable, and who knows what can happen in the aftermath of church and state working together. So, the person who will, um, who will uh, pick up what Jefferson started would be none other than um, James Madison. But before James Madison reintroduces uh, religious the Virginia Statutes of Religious Freedom, it wasn't until about um, 1779 when the statute itself was brought before the House of Delegates. But it was in the elections of uh, 1785 where many new faces came about for the House of Delegates who had ran on the platform uh, opposing taxpayer-funded dollars to support religious-based teaching instructions sponsored by the Episcopal Church. So this is where it really has its true uh, significance. Of course, it was in 1784, the year before, where Patrick Henry had introduced, uh, well, he was the, the leader, rather, I should say, of wanting to have the Episcopal Church um, be uh, sponsoring these um, religious-based uh, teaching instructions, but we have James Madison to thank for, um, for uh, striking down um, that proposal. So in the aftermath of the 1785 election, uh, House of Delegates elections rather, James Madison reintroduces Jefferson's Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom proposal. And what is significant about January 17, 1786? The Virginia General Assembly enacts Jefferson's statute proposal that was first proposed nine years earlier. It's enacted and it becomes a law which removes the Church of England from Virginia once and for all. And it, this uh, proposal or measure guarantees freedom of religion to people of all religious faiths or sects. And we must remember, too, in 1776, we, um, we cut off the Anglican Church in large part because we've declared our separation from England. However, we still want to ha have strong religious establishment in Virginia, not with England, but from within the state. But, you know, for Thomas Jefferson and men like James Madison and, yes, James Monroe, in order to have freedom of religion as a successful uh, guarantee or let alone a an essential fundamental liberty, 
church and state have to be separated because if they're not, then freedom of religion cannot be a 100% guarantee to anybody, regardless of faith. So the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom, as I said earlier, was celebrated not only throughout Virginia and other states, but it was celebrated throughout Europe. And most European nations, or, or just nations around the world, but most notably Europe at this time, viewed this, the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom as a widespread achievement. Now, I'm, I'm sure many of y'all are wondering, where's Thomas Jefferson when this happens? Is he in Virginia? To tell you the truth, folks, he's in France. He was appointed um, U.S. Ambassador in France two years earlier in 1784. And so he will be in France from 1784 to the very beginning of 1789. So uh, that that should answer your question right there. He was he would not be in Philadelphia for the Constitutional Convention, but nonetheless, Thomas Jefferson is still playing a, a vital role as our ambassador to France. As a matter of fact, I'm the next the new book I've been reading. On the side, it was written by David Haleman called Thomas Jefferson on Wine. And I've been learning a great deal about his uh, time in France. But that will be for a whole nother time. But if any of you all are wanting to learn more about Jefferson and wine, check out Thomas Jefferson on Wine. I would also recommend checking out uh, Beyond Jefferson's Vines. Anyways, back to uh, what we're uh, discussing. Now, freedom of, uh, to enact the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom has, has been a um, huge uh, milestone. But as significant as that milestone is for Virginia, there is so much more work left to be done, not just in Virginia, but for the nation as a whole. So where is James Monroe right now? Well, James Monroe is still in, um, he's still serving as a, uh, as a member of Congress, or the Co- Confederation Congress, if that's uh, how you want to put it. But which of the Jameses would be the first to marry? That answer is James Monroe. On February 16th of 1786, he would marry Elizabeth Courtright, who happened to be the daughter of a wealthy New York merchant. And it would be later in that year, in 1786, Monroe resigned from Congress as his three-year term expired to focus on his uh, legal career, that is, becoming a lawyer. Now, what I find interesting about the Virginia uh, legislature in 1786 is that the legislature itself reduces the yearly sessions from two down to one, which will enable James Monroe himself to still maintain both practices. Legislator, lawyer. You know, how ironic it is even in today's um, modern world, and I think and I do believe it's been this way for a very long time. I don't know if it officially even began in 1786, but what I do know in Virginia is that the General Assembly meets once a year during the odd years this, uh, the legislature is only um, in session for about 40 days. And then during the even years, like this year, they were in session for 60 days. So basically, um, even an odd year split, uh, 
But that doesn't mean, regardless of year, that the legislature can still stay in session a little bit longer, depending on um, depending on what the governor um, would ask of his his or her legislature to do. In other words, sometimes um, incidents can occur where a governor can say, "Hey, I need to bring the legislature back in for an emergency session." So uh, to think that there was a time when uh, the Virginia legislature met twice a year, but it is safe to say that when the Capitol was in Williamsburg, that meeting twice a year was a common uh, practice, and they would meet during the fall and in the spring. I I believe that's how it was done, but of course, um, there again, even in colonial times, um, the needs of the state could change at any time, so... But the bottom line is the legislature did convene usually twice a year. True or false, did James Monroe have an interest in finance? Uh, The answer is true. He was on a committee that worked to help modify the current nation's financial matters. And at one point, the foreign debt stood at around $440,252 a year, whereas the basic government functions stood at $2,508,327. These are just some rough ballpark estimates, but this is what Chris DeRose has mentioned in his book, and these are uh, scary numbers. When you consider just how fragile and how fledgling the direction our government, our government was in, I mean, I still find it a miracle we even survived during that time, but thank heavens we had the right leaders at the right time who were able to have enough wisdom and smarts to know that, hey, if we don't get on the right track here soon, this country could fall into anarchy. For all we know, there could be a civil war. I mean, there could be something that that could be so bad to where the United States of America might not even exist. So... I applaud James Madison, James Monroe, and others who were wise enough to realize that, hey, it's just a matter of time before the inevitable is going to happen, but we've also got to do whatever is necessary to uh, modify the current situation to where the inevitable, if in the event the inevitable does happen, it won't be as bad as it's uh, projected to already be. So James Monroe remained focused. He remained focused on a variety of um, matters, but I, I do believe that his most important focus in terms of legislative matters while in, um, while in Congress focused on Western policy, which gave Congress the power to choose governors, counselors, judges, and other officers to serve as executors over new territories, The General Assemblies could be established in Western territories once a certain population criteria got met. And westward expansion is very essential because James Monroe and even Madison himself knows, and you could go down the line, even George Washington himself knows too, that without westward expansion, our interests are not going to um, be fully um, attainable or or let alone recognized. And what I mean by interests is not just acquiring territory, but for George Washington, for example, his his dream 
goal or one of his biggest dream objectives is to um, establish a waterway system linking um, that would link, um, say, waterways um, all the way to the Great Lakes in order to establish a better trade route system that not only will transport goods more efficiently, but get those goods transported into new territories where people will establish. So in other words, George Washington is envisioning a, um, a canal system, for example, one that's going to be able to um, transport the goods by water and, um, and reduce the costs versus transporting the goods by mainland. Now, we still have a ways to go before all of that gets um, put into play, but west but this is that's just an example of the westward expansion right there all right moving on here to um, a bonus question here which congressional figure oversaw the mississippi river affairs involving spain remember how i talked about uh, from the previous night how the mississippi how there were those who uh, favored uh, westward expansion so that it would um, allow for easier access of uh, transporting goods along the Mississippi River, and then how there were those who were uh, against it because they were afraid that it would create too many uh, sectional interests that could um, lead to further tension and rift among the states. So anyways, uh, the person who is um, overseeing the Mississippi River affairs involving Spain is none, none other than John Jay. And uh, as I mentioned before from a previous podcast, uh, John Jay is a very uh, crucial member. He uh, went to France. He was one of four um, American um, delegation members who went over to France to um, help uh, negotiate with the uh, Treaty of Paris that had formally ended the American Revolution. Uh, John Jay himself, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, and Henry Lawrence. But uh, did the Mississippi River cause sectional tension or conflict? Well, as I mentioned a mo moment ago uh, from the previous night, there were um, issues. And to answer this question is the same thing. Yes, for starters, the river served as the western border of states, including Virginia. So remember, folks, you know, we don't have... You know, Virginia's land holdings still stretch as far west as um, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, into Michigan, Wisconsin. And of course, as we all know, Wisconsin borders present-day Minnesota, where the Mississippi River officially starts. So it is safe to say in the 1780s that, that Virginia's territory went all the way to the present-day Mississippi River. And then, of course, you've got many other states holding claims to land on other parts of the river. So think about it. Even the Carolinas could say that, hey, they have part of the Mississippi River. The supporters, and here's a two-pronged um, uh, answer. I probably may have already mentioned some of it earlier, but I'm going to mention it again. The supporters of Western expansion saw the river as a valuable asset to transport goods and people along the frontier. Whereas the northern states, like Massachusetts, New Hampshire, New York, for example, they had, while they had active seaports, 
They saw the Mississippi River matter as one that could bring about war, but were mostly concerned about keeping the population levels in their neck of the woods intact. So in other words, the northern states were afraid that if people got this idea of, wow, the Mississippi River offers easier transport of goods and people, then that's where we need to take our business. Okay, and, and think about that. So if people leave from Rhode Island to settle in these uh, new territories along the Mississippi, that's going to do more harm to Rhode Island's economy than it will to the new uh, frontier land. You know, and how ironic, even in today's time, we see a lot of uh, people moving all the time because they want to, sometimes they want to move somewhere where taxes are less and there's more job opportunities. But, uh, but in uh, 18th century time, you know, it's easier for people to stay in one place because 90% 90, 90 of, the po of the American population, even in the late 18th century, is still farming. And that tells you right there that only ten, that ten percent that's living in the cities, with their with their jobs, that's where the core of the work is. But if you're a farmer, why would you need to move if you have it so good in your own neck of the woods? These sectional tensions are are so high that committees in New York were planning for separation of states. The most serious crisis faced or let alone presented to our own government in the post-Revolutionary War era. So, you know, when we think of secession, we always tend to think of the Civil War. Not to get, not to get too far ahead of the game, but that's what we always think of, that American Civil War when the uh, South seceded. Well, I have to admit to you all that there have been plenty of other times in our early nation's history where states wanted to secede from one another because they were very, um, they were either distrustful of one another or sectional interests got to be so overwhelming and conflicting that they felt that it would be best for each region to um, have its own confederation so that the interests would be better um, suited based on where you lived rather than as an entire nation. But the debate over the Mississippi River would once again question the Articles of Confederation and its level of effectiveness. Now, just before the 1786 Annapolis Convention took place, who did James Madison turn to overseas for books regarding the history of of uh, confederacies past and present. Well, he turned to none other than Mr. Thomas Jefferson being our ambassador to France. Jefferson's a great source when it comes to uh, books because as I've said before, he, he had a famous quotation, I cannot live without books. Well, Jefferson was such a prodigy for his time that uh, he had so many books that um, we all should know that it wasn't so much that he read, it was the knowledge that he acquired that made him so gifted and smart to where he became um, a prodigy of his time for all of his uh, interests that he um, acquired. So James Madison is turning to an excellent source. 
and Madison would go about reading books on failed confederacies from ancient and modern times. And here's an example of a... Um, well, here I'm going to give you a couple of good examples of some failed confederacies. One of them was called the Amphic, Amphic Tionic League. This league uh, had been around um, in the time of um, Alexander the Great, for whom uh, Alexandria, Virginia is named after. If any of y'all who reside in Alexandria and you weren't sure whom it was named after, it was named after none other than Alexander the Great. Well, Alexander the Great's father is, uh, is uh, Philip of Macedon, and Alexander's father, being Philip, used the Greek city-states for his own political gain. And these Greek city-states were very jealous of one another. And because they were jealous of one another and didn't do anything to uh, come together to uh, compromise and work for the common good, Philip was able to lead a, um, an army to go about conquering the Greek city-states. And how this coincides with modern-day um, time, in, in this case in the 18th century, post-American Revolutionary War era, is that you take, for example, Spain and the Mississippi River. Spain is forcing the northern and the southern states in the United States to wage hostilities against one another over navigation rights to the Mississippi River and um, along with people wanting to go westward in that direction to establish not just a new life, but to go about establishing new territories for our country. So the bottom line is Spain is manipulating the states. They're, they're basically saying, hey, if any of you states you know, want to do this and that, go for it. James Madison himself had found a primary flaw behind failed governments he studied. Do any of you all know what that failed um, or that um, primary flaw itself was? It had to do with the following. Lacking in the ability to get things accomplished big and small. You know, governments aren't perfect, but if they can't get anything accomplished big and small, then how can a government function and how can it survive how can, ex how can it expect to do anything better than what it's already um, set out to do? So an example of a, a failed confederacy that could not get anything accomplished big and small was known as the Belgic Confederacy. Now, the Belgic Confederacy was um, located around present-day Belgium. This confederacy was around during the time of the Roman Empire, the Confederacy comprised of 52 independent cities and seven provinces. And the, and the scary thing here, folks, is that a foreign power, or let alone an enemy, would only need one city from this entire uh, confederation. One city or province out of 59 to get something their way without the other 58's consent. One province or one city-state alone could have the authority to wreak havoc on a, um, on a solid majority. 
Well, that was happening here in, in, the, um, in the United States. Same issue. A minority of states or one state alone could put regional concerns above common good for the nation as a whole. Well, you know, earlier from an early podcast I had uh, on this um, subject, or uh, the book rather, we we're talking about uh, Rhode Island was very stubborn. Uh, Rhode Island did not want to go along with doing anything. And because Rhode Island didn't want to go along with what Madison proposed, Rhode Island basically was um, favoring England's policies over the policies of our own nation. Where did James Madison arrive to on September 4th of 1786? He came to Annapolis, Maryland, where the convention would take place, or let alone the Annapolis Convention. And how ironic where James Madison himself was staying at, being at a tavern known as George Mann's Tavern, it was also where the convention itself would be held. So let's, let's remember, folks, we don't have any huge convention centers in 1786. So the best place to go for a convention is going to be at a tavern. After all, taverns were the um, backbone for, um, for political um, conversations on independence from England. So, hey, if they served that role for independence from England, why not allow a tavern to um, bring men together to discuss the weaknesses of the current uh, existing government? Now, how many states are on board with um, this uh, convention. I'll tell you this much, not all 13 were on board, but the number was five. Was Virginia one of those states? Yes. The other two were New Jersey and Delaware. And then you had two commissioners from New York and another one from Pennsylvania. I think, I think it's great that Virginia has joined in this convention because she is the largest of the 13 states. I'll say this again. I've said it a million times, but I'm going to say it once again. Not only is Virginia the largest state, not only does she have a lot to gain but a lot to lose, but whatever decisions Virginia makes or any, or any of the other states make, they have to go through Virginia first. So I think for New Jersey and... Delaware, they, they want to work with Virginia, but Virginia is going to have a greater say because of just how big her um, land holdings are, not just in, for her present geographical location, but for all that western territory. Now, will a Virginian be heading the uh, Annapolis Convention? Uh, the answer is no. Uh, the gentleman who head, who is the head chairman of this convention is none other than Mr. John Dickinson of Pennsylvania, who also just so happened to be the chief author to the Articles of the Confederation. John Dickinson is a very interesting um, fella. He was present in Philadelphia in 1776 for the Declaration of Independence. 
John Dickinson, however, was a very, very ardent um, opponent to going to war with England and let alone separation from England alone. John Dickinson did believe that it was very unjust of Parliament to have taxed us without our consent, being taxation without representation. He certainly did believe that, um, that it was unfair to tax us when it came to uh, for Parliament to tax us, when it came to placing uh, duty uh, duties on um, goods like paper, um, glass, lead, and and the tax on the tea, but Dickinson himself was very convinced that the people of Massachusetts were engaging in separation from England for all the wrong reasons. He believed that independence was doable. But he believed that it was something that needed to come gradually. There just could not be a radical break overnight. And I think for Dickinson, and along with many others at an early stage, they were afraid of of this. Okay, you declare your separation from England. What are you going to replace being governed under England with? And who's to say that if you did establish a new form of government, who's to say that it might be there still a year or two from now? So in other words, yes, you can declare your independence from another country, but are you going to have the right people who can come together to establish a government that will work for the people, by the people, not just the short term, but for long term? But John Dickinson, though, I will have to give him credit, he... um, he still remains loyal to the Americans. He does not become a traitor, but he knows now that times are much different. He knows that yes, we're in de- we're somewhat we're in de- we may have won our independence from England, but he knows that we're not a truly independent country just yet. But he does know that the uh, Congress or not the Congress. He knows that the country itself is in bad shape. So. He does truly believe, like James Madison, for example, he truly does believe that the Articles of Confederation need to, need a ma- needs a major overhaul. But the ironic thing, though, is that when the Annapolis Convention takes place, the primary focus is on trade and commerce, but the delegates in attendance were already focusing on how to address the nation's governmental defects via a broader scale. Well, as I said, mentioned a moment ago, John Dickinson is starting to see things differently, so is James Madison. And James Madison will meet a unique fella in Annapolis by the name of Alexander Hamilton. And Alexander Hamilton himself sees where James Madison is coming from with the dangers that the country is facing. Now, George Washington was not at the convention but he is still disappointed over the lack of a solid turnout. But he also sought wisdom and prayer in hopes that Virginia would take the lead. I hope Washington's right on that. And where is James Monroe right now if he's not at the Annapolis Convention? In October of 1786, James Monroe, his three-year term in Congress comes to an end, He and his wife Elizabeth will return back to Virginia, 
And in the same um, time, around the fall of 1786, Monroe himself will go about establishing a, a law practice in Virginia. Here's a big bonus question here. What bill did the House of Delegates in Virginia pass that was groundbreaking for 1787? The House of Delegates passes a bill appointing delegates to the Constitutional Convention, which passed unanimously. So this is a huge step forward in the right direction. And now George Washington can breathe, a, can breathe an initial sigh of relief to know that, hey, Virginia is making some huge progress now. We have, everybody's agreed unanimously. That means that there is no opposition whatsoever in getting delegates on board to go um, to Philadelphia to uh, bring about a new uh, convention. Now, prior to the Constitutional Convention officially starting, what did James Madison contribute which had significant meaning? Well, Madison went above and beyond to ensure that George Washington not only became a delegate to the Constitutional Convention, but he went above and beyond to ensure that Washington would himself would serve as its official chairman. Now, Washington, even though he's retired, but, you know, he's not sitting on a chair doing nothing. I mean, he's overseeing his plantation at Mount Vernon. But four years earlier in 1783, a, a new society was founded in the United States, and it, and it was founded to promote the ideals of American uh, Revolution. George Washington himself did join this society. Does anybody know, want to know what the society's name is? The Society of the Cincinnati, named for the great Roman general Cincinnatus, who had returned to private life on his farm at the end of his service to Rome. Is there a unique comparison or what? George Washington retires to Mount Vernon after his service in the American Revolutionary War. Cincinnatus returned to hit to a private life on his farm after serving his time as a general to the Roman army. There's a city in Ohio, folks. Cincinnati, Ohio, named after this fella. There is a city in New York on the outskirts of Syracuse known as Cincinnatus. So, Cincinnatus was this Roman emperor. And believe it or not, the Society of the Cincinnati is still in existence today. It was a, an organization that only catered to American and uh, French um, military commanders. And, and I will have to admit this to you all, that George Washington himself was under a lot of pressure to become president of this organization. He turned it down because he knew that it was probably more important to um, oversee the um, affairs of the Constitutional Convention. But he did not, um, but he did so in a very, what he called professional manner. In other words, he didn't go straight over to the uh, Society of the Cincinnati and say, hey, I'm not going to be your president because of all these reasons. 
The reason he didn't want to, he didn't go about doing it in that manner was because he did not want to offend any military officers. In other words, he didn't want to do anything that would uh, that what we would think of in today's time as burning a bridge. Yes, you know, Washington was revered by many people, but even the smallest mistake could offend someone to the point where in his time it could have meant burning a bridge for all the wrong reasons. So Washington, in my opinion, he probably made a very wise choice. You know, so many things are going on during this time. This is a very unsettling time in our country. I will have to say this, folks. If any of you all are wondering what was what incident, what incident could have been the straw that broke the camel's back regarding America's well-being under the Articles of Confederation. What incident could it have been? The incident itself was a was one that occurred in western Massachusetts known as Shays Rebellion. Now I've read I've read brief um excerpts about Shays Rebellion, but I will tell you all this right now. I know the basics behind it. But I do need to read some more about this incident to understand why it was one that uh, broke, that became the straw that broke the camel's back. In other words, why was this incident so bad that it put our nation's domestic security at stake? I will tell you this much from what I do know is that the incident happened in late 1786. It was led by a farmer whose name was none other than Daniel Shea. He helped orchestrate an uprising in western Massachusetts, and this was comprised of soldiers from the American Revolutionary War whom were having their property seized because they were unable to pay off uh, debts that had either been incurred before the war or after the war had ended. But the bottom line is these men did not have the money to pay off their debts. And because of that, their uh, property was going to be seized by government officials in Massachusetts. So here's a, here's a problem here, folks. There is, no con- there is a lack of congressional power. Not just action, but power. In other words, Congress is now limited to put down even... A- a potential rebellion. We don't have what's called a National Guard. So, scores of farmers come together to go about closing the court systems, which would mean halting the foreclosure proceedings on uh, properties. And if any of you all don't know what foreclosure means, that means uh, the closure on a home. In other words, um, it's been sold, but the foreclosure is the final act on um, on completing the transaction of um, of closing the deal on um, on uh, buying out someone's home. So this rebellion does happen, and it is put down by the Massachusetts militia. But sadly, at the expense of many rebels being arrested and killed, this incident was a red flag case. National security on the domestic front. 
Another example right here of a situation gone so bad where gov governmental reform was needed to be able to put down domestic um, terrorism, to put down um, insurrections from home, because without a, uh, without a national government, then how can any would-be rebellions be put down? So this is a scary time, folks. What did James Madison fear governmental-wise that could arise if no action was taken to reform the Articles of Confederation? Well, here's part of the answer to what I just mentioned earlier, except it's going to be, um, it'll be something different. He feared monarchy, and I don't blame him. You know, we just fought a war to get rid of not just a foreign influence, not foreign influence, but a, um, but we fought a war to keep a tyrant. Um, we fought a war to keep a tyrant away from our country. In other words, we we lived three thousand miles away from a tyrant, but the tyrant's practice—not just King George III's practice, but that of parliaments—was corrupting people's daily lives. Well, what did Madison fear more than anything? Monarchy. In other words, someone out of nowhere on domestic soil could become a monarch. He could have all kinds of power, power that could go unchecked to the point where people could become subjects again, just like we were subjects at our own, um, at our own mercy to King George III. So, from whom would James Madison learn about George Washington's declining the presidential post from the Society of the Cincinnati to come instead to the Constitutional Convention? Answer would be none other than Mr. Edmund Randolph, who was governor of Virginia. Well, the Constitutional Convention's purpose, if any of y'all are wondering right now, what do you think its primary purpose would be as of right now? To revise the Articles of Confederation. In other words, we need to go about revising this uh, current government so it looks a little bit better than what it already is showing for. But James Madison is starting to see things entirely different, along with a few other fellows too, most notably like Alexander Hamilton, John Dickinson. Um, I think it's probably fair to say that even James Monroe himself would like to start seeing things differently. After all, he only served a three-year stint in Congress, and like Madison himself, they both worked like Turks to get things done. They would have been what's called the minority. In other words, they weren't scoffing, they weren't poking fun of Congress. They were actually wanting to get things done, while others chose to do the opposite. Well, when, when I'm on the air again next, we're going to talk about um, the, uh, everybody coming together as one in May of 1787, because that will be the time when um, Congress convenes as a quorum, that is, they get enough members as a quorum to convene and start um, talking about the new direction that this country is, needs to go in. Otherwise, if we don't take a new course of action, then we have to ask ourselves this question. 
Will we have a United States as we know it? Well, tomorrow is a big day for all of us as Americans. If you haven't voted, I strongly say that I strongly recommend that you do so. My wife and I have already voted. We did absentee voting. Uh, but hey, there's nothing wrong with doing that versus waiting in a long line. The bottom line is, folks, yes, our country is at a crossroads. The United States is. But the good news, though, is that we still have a Constitution that is um, strongly intact after 233 years. We still have a government that we can wake up to. Yes, there are those who want to do harm. And unfortunately, um, it's, not, it's not the right thing to do, especially when you live under a democracy. But the bottom line is, folks, is that we have to continue to find ways to ensure that our government will still function, even in the most trying of times. Even um, on Sunday, when my wife and I were um, on Zoom with our Sunday school class, um, our Sunday school teachers were agricultural missionaries from Africa. And they lived through about um, four or five coups. They lived in Uganda. And I don't know how anybody could live through four or five coups, but these people did, and they still accomplished a lot. But as one of the teachers said, she never thought that, um, you know, she, she always knew that when of political unrest being in foreign countries, where governments were, were not often stable, but she said that she never thought it would be in this country, given right now with everything that's going on, most notably with coronavirus and a variety of other things. But it really struck me right there, because I had never realized that until just now. I do hope that uh, better days are ahead for us in this country. Now, I'm not here to discuss politics, but I am here to say that, hey, our forefathers even though they are no longer with us in person, they are with us in spirit, and they are watching us from above and making sure that, hey, but and saying this, that, hey, our Constitution's been intact for 233 years. Let's keep this thing going. Even in an ever-changing world like the one we're living in, we've got to ensure that this keeps on going because if we don't have this constitution that we worked so hard to uh, establish, and yes, it may not have been the most perfect in 1787, but it was the best thing we could come up with for its time, it still is that way today. So we, we must keep this thing intact. Otherwise, if we don't have this thing intact, then we will be in anarchy. And then we will not be able to um, be a beacon of hope to those from elsewhere around the world who want to have a who want to have some form of democratic government. Well, that's all for tonight and I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. Take care and have a good evening and stay safe.